The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Stephen G. Bloom. Uh, He is a lawyer. He teaches at Wharton, and he is the author of a new book called Negotiating Your Investments. Use Proven Negotiation Methods to Enrich Your Financial Life. Welcome to the show, Steve. Well, thank you, Jordan. It's good to be with you. Let's just start with your background a little bit uh, and what it was that led you to uh, write this book. Well, um, I guess I've had two careers that... Simultaneously, uh, I have uh, been teaching at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania for just over 20 years, Uh, and in particular, the particular focus of my teaching is primarily negotiation and dispute resolution. At the same time, um, I have a background as a tax lawyer, and eventually, in trying to really find an area where I could guide people and help them in ways that I thought were really helping and were really useful, I eventually became a registered investment advisor uh, as part of the effort to really get people the kind of solutions they, they needed. So I've been doing that for almost 20 years as well. The reason I wrote the book was I suddenly realized, well, I don't know if suddenly is the right word, but over time perhaps I realized that the work I was doing as a teacher and consultant in negotiation was very much informing the advice I was giving people on their financial life, and I think informing it in an extremely positive way. So I set out to explore that, and hopefully this book conveys how the one can help you with the other. Uh, What is your website, and what can can people find at your website? Uh, If you go to my uh, blog site, which is www.negotiatingtruth.com, I post about once a week. Uh, And in addition, there's a link there to uh, the book itself. Uh, I believe that link is to Amazon. The book is published by Wiley, and you can go there and see it. Uh, And uh, there's other things at the website, including uh, ways to contact me, ways to engage me as consultants or talk or whatever it is that people might want to do. Very good. Let's kind of start at a high level on negotiation. What is it that most people do wrong when they're negotiating? Did not end up getting what they want. Well, that's a great question. Let's start with this. If you, if you limit me to one thing that people are not necessarily doing as well as they could, I would say preparation. The more you prepare, get ready, understand, and gather information in a negotiation, the better you're going to do. So that's a, that's a good starting point. Now, the book goes on to offer a couple of different kinds of frameworks for how do you think about a negotiation, and you can use those frameworks as a way to prepare as well as to analyze while you're going and, and uh, uh, find mistakes as, as, as you go, including in the middle of a negotiation and toward the end. 
What do people fear about negotiating on their own behalf? Well, I guess a lot of different people fear a lot of different things. I teach undergraduates and MBAs, and uh, undergraduates in particular, mostly juniors and seniors, so let's just say they're 20-year-old people. They come in and they say, at the beginning, I'm afraid of the conflict. I'm afraid that I don't know what I'm doing. I'm afraid that the other will somehow take advantage of me or be better at this than me. By the end of a semester class, I'm confident to look at them and say, you're all pretty darn good at this now. And that's partly from reading, but in large measure from practicing. So you have them during the class, get the concepts, but then you have them actually do negotiations. So it's something that you do improve with if you do practice it? Absolutely. Beyond a doubt, it's like most things in life. The more you, you practice in a thoughtful way in a, in a, in a, while well, you're observing and paying attention and learning as you go, you get better and better. Um, my students uh, often hear me say that I had the most extraordinary negotiation teachers in the world when I was a graduate student at Harvard, and they insisted that not only were we going to learn through a process of reading and discussion in class, but it was going to be case-based. And so I teach the same way I was taught. So in most people's lives, do they have a lot of negotiations? Or most people would think, well, I don't really have that much to negotiate over. It happens occasionally, so I don't really have to be very good at it. But your point well, is that it, it happens more frequently than people might realize. Actually, I, I think my book is about a process that we would say happens all the time in your life, at least every single day. We talk about negotiation as being a process that occurs whenever you interact with somebody and they want something from you or you want something from them. So in a way, almost everything that happens is a negotiation according to that broad definition. Uh, and I frequently challenge my students to think about their interactions with their, their roommates, their friends, their, their love interests, their parents, and then I eventually point out that even when a baby is born, the very first thing that happens after a baby is born I would call a negotiation, and that is baby asks, without words, mind you, to be fed, and mother almost always uh, meets that request. It's a very broad definition of negotiation. You would say during your book that you should not settle for win-win. Most people think of negotiation that's supposed to come out win-win. Why is that not the best thing uh, for everybody involved? Well, win-win is good. I don't mean to say uh, turn it aside, but rather aim a little higher. For this, I'm indebted to my Wharton colleague, Richard Schell, uh, who points out that Part of what happens with win-win is as soon as you find your way to a solution that you understand to be win-win, all the air goes out. You breathe a deep sigh and you go, oh, we're finished. And you make the deal at that moment. And very often doing that leaves a tremendous amount of money on the table. So if you set win-win as some kind of a minimum, you want to set your goals a little higher than that and very often you'll find that you can create an, uh, a solution with your negotiating partners that's far better than the initial win-win idea. I often point out to students that when you go to the bakery and you buy a loaf of bread, that's win-win. 
the, the baker wanted your $3 more than he wanted the loaf of bread. After all, he's got lots of loaves of bread. You wanted the loaf of bread more than the $3. It's definitely win-win, but it's not the kind of uh, creative, thought-intensive negotiation that we're trying to teach because there's so much more available if you do a good job of it. Do you think a lot of people are good negotiators out there today, or there's a lot of people that really don't know what they're doing in a position to be negotiators? I'm talking about big deals, not everyday kind of things. Well, I think there's some of both. Harkening back to what I said earlier, I think those who practice a lot get better at it, and those who don't probably don't. But I, I, as I wrote a little bit in the book, um, a long time ago, longer than I'm willing to admit, I got out of law school. I was a very idealistic person, and I had gone to law school intent on making a real difference in this world. And uh, my first job after clerking was with legal services. I represented poor elderly people. But in my law training, nobody had ever said a word about negotiation, and that turned out to be the, the single thing I did the most. And I didn't really know how to do anything except shout at the other lawyer that I was going to sue them. Uh, not very effective, not a very good idea. So um, getting a chance to study it enough to think about what are you doing and why are you doing it and how can you be purposeful um, can lead almost anybody to become a better negotiator than they are now. Now, you've got 11 different key points about negotiation. I just want to go through them briefly and kind of give some ideas about how to negotiate better. The first one you say is to know what you don't want, what you do want, and what's even better. So how can people apply that in their negotiation? Well, I often talk about what is a good outcome. I tell students it's my favorite question. What is a good outcome? What are you really trying to do? As it happens, Jordan, I was uh, listening to a radio program earlier today. It had nothing to do with negotiation. It was about a new initiative by the government having to do with hospitals. It seems that a lot of hospitals cause iatrogenic illness, where people get sick in the hospital from something else besides what they came in for. And my mind drifted to this idea of good outcome, and I realized if you bring your grandparents to the hospital because they have some disease, and the hospital cures the disease, but your grandparent dies, that's not a good outcome, is it? No. <laughs> so, no, not at all, even though the hospital might say we were successful, which brings up the old joke where the surgeon says the operation was a complete success, but the patient died. So what you, in figuring out what you really, really want, you start to eliminate a lot of things you don't want. So, for example, sometimes we think that what, we, what we're interested in or we get pulled towards some kind of idea of vanquishing our enemy or teaching them a lesson or putting them down our adversary. And one of the things that most negotiation teachers kind of urge is actually what you really want is for your negotiating partner to walk away thinking they got everything they ever wanted as long as you got exactly what you wanted. So is that always possible? I mean, if there's a limited pool of money or talent. I mean, both sides can't get everything they want. Somebody's got to give to some extent, I would assume. Absolutely right. But in any negotiation, there are usually many, many different options as to how to structure the deal. Many, many ways to put the deal together. And some of them meet the party's interests better than others. 
So we're looking for the efficient, the elegant, the value-creating options, and we're looking to eliminate those where uh, less value is created and less satisfaction is felt as the parties uh, leave the negotiating table or make their deal. It's certainly not always possible that everybody gets everything they want, but on the other hand, um, in almost any situation, the parties potentially are going to, can get an awful lot of what they want, and that's what you want to be working toward. So how about, for, for example, in a labor situation where you've got uh, high-profile, you know, the NBA players or the NHL players or something like that, and there's yeah. literally billions of dollars at stake here, and the players want more, and the owners want to give them less, and uh, they have new well, rules and so on. Me, I mean, Jordan, what does each side really, really want? The players? Well, let me ask you. What, what do the players really want? Well, they want more money, and they want to be honored for the work they're doing, and... and I mean, it's not only about money in the case like that. They want right. kind of working conditions in a case they like want that. To be, they want to be honored and, and, and in some cases worshipped as great players. How about the owners? What do they really, really want? Well, in many cases, they want to be profitable. A lot of these owners lose money on these teams, uh-huh. and so they, they don't want to lose money, and they want to have a sense of control, which in many cases they don't feel they have because they're but competing they, against each other for, for talent all the time. But, they, but, but, but so... One thing that we could agree, I think, is that both the players and the owners have an interest in common in the success of the team and the franchise, right? Yes, that's right. So anything they do that builds success is an action that actually creates value because it's an action that leads toward their both getting more of what they want. Fair statement? Yeah, and, and okay. it's hard, hard so to get there becomes, sometimes. <laughs> it, well, yeah, but, but you can build into agreement. Once you identify all the things, all the different actions that could create value for both sides, then you can build them into the agreement. I'm reminded of a story uh, that uh, uh, the, um, a colleague of mine, Shapiro, uh, is very fond of telling uh, some years back, there was a great baseball player in Minneapolis named Kirby Puckett. And um, he, not only was he a good baseball player, but he was also a great hometown favorite. The, the Minneapolis fans just felt Kirby was their own. Um, and Kirby wanted to be one of the highest players, uh, paid players in baseball. He thought he deserved that, and it was important to him. Um, uh, and the, but the team was limited in its financial resources. Somehow there came to be a deal where part of what Kirby was paid with were tickets. Because Kirby, among the many things he did in Minneapolis, was he took uh, uh, young disadvantaged kids to the ball game. So the tickets had great value to him. And when they added up the value of those tickets, they could say, oh, Kirby's one of the highest play- paid players in baseball. And yeah, a win-win case like that, yes. A great value creation win-win deal, exactly. So it's not to say everybody got everything they wanted, but everybody got more of what they wanted than it looked like at the outset. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Stephen Bloom. His new book is called Negotiating Your Investments. His website is negotiatingtruth.com. We'll be back after this. 
Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Houston Real Estate Radio with Shannon Register. Tuesdays at 10 Eastern, 1 Pacific on Voice America's Variety Channel. As we have transitioned into a healthier housing market, supply has not been able to keep up with demand. Appraisals have struggled to keep up with rising prices, and lenders have overcorrected their loose lending practices. We track all this and more so you don't have to. HoustonRealEstateRadio.com Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m. 10 Central every Sunday. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Stephen G. Bloom. He is a lawyer. He is a teacher at uh, the Wharton School. He's an expert on negotiation, and his book is called Negotiating Your Investments, and his website is negotiatingtruth.com. Welcome back to the show, Steve. Thanks, Jordan. So this particularly relates to the financial services industry, but one of the key points you say is as a customer... You have to be aware when you're negotiating that you're on an uneven playing field. So what do you mean by that? Well, sometimes when you negotiate, you feel like you, it's even. You know as much as the other person knows. Nobody has an advantage. However, it seems to me a fair statement that when you're negotiating with the financial services industry or representatives of it, it's not an even playing field at all. To put it in plain English... They know an awful lot more than you do. They know more about the industry. They know more about the investments. They know the products and the, the, the very subjects of the negotiation. And indeed, very often they even know more about you because you've probably supplied them with a great deal of information about yourself. So negotiating when the field isn't even is uh, calls for a certain, um, a certain caution and... Uh, certain kinds of preparation and taking taking actions that you might not do otherwise. Like what would be some actions? If, you've, if you're in an uneven situation, you can't really even the field. You're not going to be an expert as much as they are. So 
what can you do to still get a good deal if it's an uneven playing field? There are a number of things you can do, but let me start with the big one. When we talk about uh, negotiating, we talk about seven elements of negotiating, and they're all in this book. And uh, But let's talk about the one that is called alternatives. This is alter- what alternatives are, are things you can do instead of this deal. So if, you, if this deal completely breaks down and you have to walk away and do something else, what are you going to do? All of those things are your alternatives, but my teachers talked about, and I talk in this book about the best of your alternatives, which they call your BATNA. What is the single best thing you can do if you walk away? It turns out that having a strong best alternative is where power comes from in a negotiation. So when you're negotiating with the financial services industry and the question comes up, what's your alternative? It turns out that an investor, your listeners, average folks, they have more power than they think because that which they're seeking, which is to say investments, investment advice, certain investment uh, opportunities, these are ubiquitous in American society. If, if you don't like the advisor you're talking to, look across the street. There's probably another office, right? So actually, you're the one with the capital. You're the one who, uh, who can walk away. And the other side, the industry and its representatives, they're the ones who need your money. It turns out that that means you're the one with negotiating power as long as you claim it. You have to understand that, and you have to feel it. Just to be clear, you were talking about BATNA. That stands for Best Alternative to a Negotiated Agreement. That's what you were referring right. to there. <clears throat> That's right. And anybody who's, uh, who's taken a negotiating course is probably familiar with the term. It was uh, originally appeared in Getting to Yes by Fisher, Urey, and Patton, which is the kind of perennial bestseller book on negotiating. That book came out of Harvard, and those guys were my teachers when I was in graduate school. Now, another thing you say is to watch out for conflicts of interest, particularly in the financial services industry. If you understand what's on their side, how can you negotiate around that so you're not swallowed up by the conflicts of interest? Well, I think the first thing to do is is really get your head around conflicts of interest. And let me put it this way. If you're looking for best advice from somebody, and put yourself in their shoes... If, as they see it, you, just for example, you have three possible investment choices, and on one, they make no money, and on a, on a middle one, they make a little bit of money, and on a third one, they make a great deal of money. Guess which one they're going to be interested in having you invest in? In many ways, it is hard to escape that if, if advice is conflicted, it's not going to be good advice. So it seems to me that you want to explore conflicts of interest and you simply want to choose not to work with any person or firm who has severe conflicts of interest. Well, now, say somebody's uh, you know, charging a commission for selling a product. Yeah. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean that the product is bad. I mean, they earn a commission on it. I mean, should you necessarily well, rule somebody it, out it, just because they earn a commission on selling well, something? Well, what I'm worried about is not that the product is bad, but that the advice is bad. So let me offer you this suggestion. Imagine we lived in a different world in which all doctors worked for one or another major drug companies. 
and you went to the doctor, and she examined you, and she said, you have such and such disease. Now, the best cure for that disease is a drug called X. But X is sold by Merck, and I'm not a Merck doctor. So I'm going to treat you with Y. Now, it's almost as good, but it's a, it's a drug offered by a company that I work with. We would find that completely and totally unacceptable, wouldn't we? Yeah. Although so, doctors, you know, do prescribe a lot of drugs that in many cases are probably not needed and they respond yeah, to incentives we, a lot. But what we expect of them, and what, at least what we ask of them, is they prescribe the absolutely best drug for the condition. Yeah. And that their, their judgment about that is not clouded in any way by the idea that they would make more money from one drug than another. In fact, our system is that they don't make any money no matter what drugs they prescribe. Yeah. Um, and so the fear is that conflicted advice is simply too tainted. And, and, and that's a big one. Now, so as I was saying, I think, if, if you, I think you want to simply choose not to work with somebody whose, whose conflicts are very severe, such as, oh, I make my living by directing you to certain choices and not others. Well, for example, However, there are financial people who are so-called captive agents. And they just work for one insurance company or one brokerage firm that has its own approved products or right. something like and that. You're saying you should never deal with any of those people? Uh, that would, well, I don't want to say anything quite that sharp, but I would say consider with extreme care and extreme intensity and read my book first and then decide whether it makes sense to deal with them. But it seems to me that if you're looking for best for judgment as to what is best for you, you don't want somebody who is sharply limited in the choices they can make or the choices they're willing to make. Yeah. You also say that uh, people should beware of beat-the-market promises. Now, this is the staple of the financial services industry, and they're showing you the great track record the last five or ten years of this particular ETF or fund or whatever it may be. How, right. how could you get around the beat the problem? That, that's the, the core existence of the financial services industry. Well, let me start with this, Jordan. Um, there's a lot of science here, and you want to have some knowledge of the science. You don't want to be simply in the hands of others with no knowledge of your own. So I say in the book, economists, they know things, they know what they do know, they know what they don't know, and they know what no one can ever know. There's a lot of study of this stuff. Um, it turns out that no one can successfully, consistently beat market averages or beat market indexes in an asset class. So I know that's a, a controversial statement, and a lot of people are out there um, saying otherwise, but um, I've been lecturing about this for a long time. I've studied with some very well-known economist, but I caught a break this year, Jordan, because this past year, Professor Eugene Fama of the University of Chicago won the Nobel Prize, basically for teaching us that nobody can consistently beat the markets. And by the way, the work that he did that he won the prize for was done in the 1960s. Economists have known this for a long time. So if you're paying somebody to beat the market for you, you're paying them for something that economists know cannot be done. Although another Nobel was given the same year by, to Schiller, who said you can beat the market. 
So well, they kind of, they, they did both no, sides. Have Schiller on your show and ask him. <laughs> now, can one of my listeners beat the market with, with the help of, uh, of a broker from such and such company? Professor Will Schiller will surely tell you absolutely not. Mm-hmm. It can't be done, and economists know it. Now, if I were listening to this for the first time, I would obviously say, well, what do you mean it can't be done? As you pointed out to me, Jordan, um, there's a such-and-such fund, and it beat the market the last three or four years in a row, and there are big advertisements about that. And it turns out that what that is is the playing out of random chance. Of course, some are going to do better than others. And the way I love to demonstrate this when a lecture is the following. If I'm in a room with 100 people, I ask each one to take out a coin, preferably a quarter, and I tell the whole room of 100 people, I want you to try as hard as you can to flip heads. 50 of them can do it. Well, we know that that doesn't mean anything. You 50, do it again. Try hard to to get heads. 25 of them can do it. Third time, 12 of them can do it. Fourth time, six of them do it. Fifth time, three of them do it. And on the sixth flip, we have one person who has flipped heads six times in a row. So let's discuss how much head-slipping talent he has. What do you think? You're saying there's a lot of luck involved or something like that. Yes. He has no talent. If he, if he now says to you, I will put, you know, give me your money and I will either show you or bet for you on heads, we all know as a scientific matter... If the coin is fair, his odds of flipping heads on the next flip are exactly 50-50. Yes. Okay, we have to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Stephen Bloom. His new book is called Negotiating Your Investments. Use proven negotiation methods to enrich your financial life. His website is negotiatingtruth.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. 
My guest this hour is Stephen G. Bloom. He is a lawyer. He's an expert in negotiation. He's a teacher at Wharton School of Economics. Uh, his new book is called Negotiating Your Investments. Use proven negotiation methods to enrich your financial life. And his website is negotiatingtruth.com. Welcome back to the show, Stephen. Thanks, Jordan. So we were going through some of the points people need to keep in mind as they're negotiating. One is not to get distracted by side issues. What do you mean by that? Well, it goes back to what you and I were talking about earlier, about the idea of identifying a good outcome and pursuing your real interests, your real underlying goals as to what you're trying to do in a negotiation and not to allow yourself to chase after things that don't actually lead toward those goals. So an example that is good to work with for me because I'm, I'm trying to write about and talk about investing is um, all the different uh, extras that you would see in an advertisement uh, for an, uh, a financial company, and I'm going to use one of them. Uh, many financial companies will say, well, we have the best research, and we have great access to good research for you. Um, what's your goal? Well, your goal is to invest well and appropriately and uh, to make money through those investments and not to, not to take more risk than, than is appropriate for you and your family. Can the research help you with that? Actually, it turns out that economists know that it probably cannot. Um, a basic premise of efficient market uh, theory or the efficient market hypothesis is that most investments, or I'm going to say all publicly traded investments, are correctly priced based on what is known about them now. And that what they will do in the future is based on surprises or unexpected events that will occur in the future. The very definition of unexpected and unpredictable events is can't know them in advance. So the research isn't actually going to do you any good. So if you go chasing around after, oh, I want good research, if it's not going to actually help you get to your goal, you shouldn't be distracted by it. So basically what you're saying is don't get any financial advice. Just buy index funds and go to sleep for, for the rest of your life. You don't need well, financial no, advice. Well, no, that's not basically what I'm saying, but, but, but let's pursue that a little bit. Um, <laughs> index funds are almost surely a very, very wise idea. Um, now, but you said don't get any advice. A, a good advisor has a tremendous amount to offer you. Let me, let me suggest some of those things. Um, we, I mentioned asset allocation. If you buy, if you put 100% of your assets into a stock index fund, and then the next time we have a big uh, crash or, or sharp fall in our stock markets, as we do very, on almost a regular basis, but it can't be predicted, most recently in 2008, if you then can't stand the pain and, get, and dump those uh, investments uh, at somewhere near the bottom, which is what most, most retail investors do, um, an advisor would have been incredibly helpful to you, first of all, to have the appropriate amount of risk in your portfolio so that you could have withstood the pain of bad times, and second of all, to try and hold your hand and ha stop you from doing the most foolish thing you could have done. But other things that uh, an account advisor can do for you. Um, there are tax consequences to every investment move you make. 
Uh, and a good advisor will put money in your pocket that way. Thinking about your estate planning goals, thinking about your charitable giving, because charitable giving can be handled in different ways, and they all have different tax consequences. Uh, I don't know if I if it's fair to say this, but uh, most uh, most people who get really good advice uh, give to charity at about seventy five cents on the dollar. Um, Thinking through uh, issues of uh, debt and, and what debt it makes sense to take on and what debt is folly. So there are a bunch of really important financial issues where skilled help is useful. But you're saying in the investing area particularly that uh, trying to pick actively managed funds, try to beat the market is a fool's error and you shouldn't even try. Just basically you're, you should work with your advisor, but basically his job is to pick you a good uh, portfolio of asset allocated Index funds. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Correct. And I'll, I'll, I'll go further than what you just said. Economists know that that errand of trying to actively manage mutual funds is something that, for the most part, cannot be done successfully. And therefore, to pay somebody to do something that scientists know can't be done is an act of high folly. So do you realize how many billions of dollars are being put into that, and it's not only mutual funds, it's hedge funds, pension, <laughs> pension funds, literally hundreds of, maybe trillions of dollars is going uh-huh. against what you're saying here. Uh, yeah, now I think there was a story, uh, an ancient story about an emperor who wore beautiful, beautiful clothes, and everybody said the clothes were beautiful, but the emperor was naked, was he not? So there's a lot of naked emperors out there, I guess you might say. I think we're talking about one of them right now. Um, look, in the end, you say, well, our smartest, econ- our, our smartest people go to, go to school, and they study, and they get PhDs, and they talk with our other smartest people and our other PhDs, and eventually they reach conclusions based on science, based on experimentation. And by the way, there's two branches to this science. There's theoretical understandings, And there's empirical evidence. We know what has happened in stock markets in the last hundred years. I mean, if if, if you want to amuse yourself um, on this question, take a look at how many funds have beat their their indexes over the last one year, two years, three years, and five years. But then go on to look at it over 20 years, 30 years. And what you find is the numbers start dropping away toward, toward none. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Bill. Uh, I, I think I, I may have written this. I certainly lectured about it. There was a fellow named Bill Miller. Many of us have heard of him, and he ran a very, very successful mutual fund. Yeah. And I think he beat the Standard Poor's 500 15 or 16 years in a row. About 15 years, leg Mason value. Right. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. And it was an extraordinary performance. And he beat it every year until the year when he didn't, and the year after that when he didn't. Now. People said to me, but isn't that extraordinary talent? Um, And what I ended up uh, concluding was, let's take our coin flipper thing, uh, where I had 100 people in a room flipping coins, and now let's ask as many people as there are in the world who make their living choosing investments. How many do you suppose that is, Jordan? You want to give us a number? Millions. (laughs) Millions. Well, I let my mind fix I couldn't do millions. I couldn't do that math, but I let my mind fixate on 100,000 because when I was a boy, Cleveland Brown Stadium held 100,000. I thought it was a fabulous number. 
Okay. If you filled up Cleveland Brown Stadium with 100,000 people, gave them each a quarter, and asked them to flip heads, one head flipper champion would manage to flip heads something on the order of 15 times. It's still That's... random chance playing itself out. Yeah. Okay. Let, let's go on. Another thing you say is when you're negotiating, you should not pay for anything that isn't fair or doesn't provide value to you. So you think a lot of people are paying for things that are not fair or do not provide value to them? Well, I do. I do. And let's start with what we were just talking about. If economists know that nobody can pick between this investment and that investment, then I don't believe it's fair to pay somebody to be trying to make those picks for you if scientists know it can't be done. Nor would I pay somebody to hold me to the earth because gravity might stop and I might just kind of float away. But, um, but let's get more specific than that. Um, in any negotiation, but I guess we're talking about negotiations with the financial industry, um, you want to be sure that you understand what the real value proposition is. And you want to understand it to a much deeper level than just some person who is skilled in sales or at least whose company has given them a great deal of training in sales trying to assure you of things. You want to do outside research, if you will, outside inquiry. You want to do your preparation. You want to gather your information. And you want to know, what is this person really doing for me that actually leads toward my goals? And then you want to pay appropriately for it. So... Um, in many transactions in our lives, we know what we're paying. But then there's a whole subset of them where we really do not know what we're paying. And a tremendous amount of the financial services industry at this point is a, a kind of a hide-the-ball game on how much are we actually paying for these services. Um, I think that is something that you desperately want to avoid and you should take strong measures to avoid. Buying a service when... when the price of it is not clear, straightforward, and transparent. You, you must not be very popular with the financial service industry because you're basically trashing the entire industry, saying they're well, providing very uh, little of service. Well, I, I'm not trying to trash. I'm, what I'm trying to do is say, all right, well, let me put, put, the, who, put this question out there. Um, what would be wrong with a straightforward fee for service? How much am I paying you? for what you do for me, directly and indirectly. There are people that do that. There are fee-only financial planners, for example. And, okay. I mean, the SEC has a huge amount of uh, uh, regulations as to what fees need to be disclosed and prospectuses and so on. So there's a lot of disclosure right now. You're saying you need even more disclosure. No, I'm saying to the negotiator, to, to your listener, my reader, I'm saying just because something is disclosed in an 80-page document that your lawyer could not understand, never mind you, you're a negotiator and you have another choice. You can say, no thank you. Until you sit down with me and tell me exactly what you charge and the ways it is calculated and the ways it comes out, until that moment, we don't have a deal because we don't have a meeting of the mind. And you're saying that usually doesn't happen. People go ahead and buy things without knowing what they're getting into, really, financially. And I think that's a huge mistake. At the, the profit of the financial industry, illegitimately, you're saying? I'm sorry, I didn't understand that last. Meaning that the, the financial services industry is profiting from people's 
lack of negotiating skills and intelligence about these kinds of things. I think that's a fair statement. Okay. Yeah. And, All right. You know, they, they can do, the, the industry can do what it wants, except for you, my reader, or you, your listener, or, you know, my student, or my cousin. I want to take care of them. In many cases, and, they feel intimidated by the process and don't yeah. feel like can, can fight back. Okay, right. we're going to take and, a break. And, and, okay. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Stephen G. Bloom. Uh, he's a lawyer. He's a professor at uh, Wharton School at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. As the author of a new book called Negotiating Your Investments, Use Proven Negotiation Methods to Enrich Your Financial Life. His website, negotiatingtruth.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Houston Real Estate Radio with Shannon Register. Tuesdays at 10 Eastern, 1 Pacific on Voice America's Variety Channel. As we have transitioned into a healthier housing market, supply has not been able to keep up with demand. Appraisals have struggled to keep up with rising prices, and lenders have overcorrected their loose lending practices. We track all this and more so you don't have to. HoustonRealEstateRadio.com whether the market's up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Stephen G. Bloom. Uh, He's a lawyer. He's an expert in negotiation. His book is called Negotiating Your Investments. Welcome back to the show, Steve. Thank you, Jordan. So you're saying that costs are really important in doing investing, and you have a whole chapter here called Costs Are Important, They Reduce Your Returns. So what? just give us a sense of how important costs are, how they reduce people's returns, and what they should do to lower those costs to get the higher returns. Okay. Well, it turns out that costs reduce returns dollar for dollar. One dollar of cost reduces your return, your return by one dollar. So... The industry, we, you and I were talking earlier about the fact that most people don't really know what the costs are. They're being hidden. Um, and the industry is, is, has not really been forthright and open enough for there to be an understanding of, hey, what is fair and appropriate. So it turns, if you are actually paying a cost of 2%, which is not unusual, 
if the underlying investments make a return of 10%, but you're paying 2%, 2% is being taken out, what you will see as a net return is 8%, right? Very simple math. On the other hand, if the underlying investments, those same investments they make 10%, and you're paying one-tenth of 1%, then your net return will be 9.9%. So the question that I want to focus people on is, so how big a deal is that? How much is at stake? And what I want to point out is if you start with $100,000 and you pay 2% more than you should, in one year, that would be $2,000. However, over 30 years, which seems like a good framework to talk about for a retirement account, you have to take into account the compounding. So it is not just 30 uh, times 2,000, which would be 60,000. Rather, with compounding, if, it were, if, if the investments are compounding at 7%, if they're making 7% and 2% is coming out in those costs, over 30 years, that 2% would have cost you, on $100,000 now, would have cost you $431,000. That's how much less you would have at the end of 30 years. That's a big deal. Everything that you and I have been talking about, Jordan, it's not small stakes, and we need to be careful not to misunderstand that 2% doesn't sound like a big number. It's a huge number. So that's asset management fees, typically, on a mutual fund. What are some of the other fees that people might be paying they're not aware of? Well, there's management fees, there's sales charges, there's um, a manipulation of sales charges that takes them out at the back end, so there are exit fees and exit charges. There are indirect products, the most famous of them are various kinds of annuities, which are more complicated investment vehicles, and in the complication, a great deal more is charged. Um, There are soft money arrangements, there are... There are, there are payments for shelf space. There, there are just all kinds of, of expenses. Uh, another one that's worth mentioning is the SEC figures that we all know for, uh, for uh, a mutual fund's internal operating fee does not include brokerage trading fees. And so some funds that trade a great deal can run up fees that can even exceed uh, the, the, the management fees. Uh, that's right. So, I guess you wouldn't be a big, big fan of hedge funds these days, which are the hot investment everybody wants to get into alternatives because no, their returns I, I, are so much no. higher. It's a fair point. I think invest, uh, hedge funds are a, are a tremendous mistake. But going all the way back to the original idea, if you're going to dump a lot of money into a hedge fund, it's a lot of money. Shouldn't you do your homework and think like a negotiator? and learn all about it and investigate it. And if you investigate hedge funds, what you will find is that most experts who study them will tell you they are not at all a good idea. They are usually the equivalent of giving somebody your money and saying, why don't you go to Vegas for me and gamble with my money? And what the so manager... Why, why is it that, if, if this what? is true, that yeah. all these super sophisticated, both individuals and institutions are pouring hundreds of billions of dollars into hedge funds that have a 2 and 20 uh, fee structure uh, year after year and giving them more and more. They've got over $2 trillion now in hedge funds. Are all these people just incredible idiots? Well, why would anybody pay a 2 and 20? Why would you do that? 
Because they think they're going to earn a much higher rate of return that's going to make it worthwhile. And are they? How'd they do in 2009? Or, I'm sorry, 2008? One of the problems with hedge funds is it's easy enough to get huge numbers by leveraging up your bet, by, by borrowing and then, use, and then using the borrowed money to increase returns. But the danger of that is the downside becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. What happens to a hedge fund when it goes bust? Never happens. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, and it's never heard from again, and it even drops out of the statistics. You see, there are a lot of, particularly pension funds, that well, if they just keep their money in very safe things, they're earning very low yields, they're not going to be able to have enough return to pay their liabilities when the pensioners retire. Mm-hmm. So they feel they have to take extra risks in order to be able to pay their liabilities, and that's why they're pouring so much into hedge funds. Well, if I were them, I would just uh, hire Professor Fama or Professor retired Professor <laughs> Malkiel, one of the giants of the economics field, and say, what can we do to take that extra risk real, real inexpensively? But to pay these super wealthy hedge fund folks who, what are their interests? What's a hedge fund manager's interest? What is he trying to do? Make, make their clients wealthy. No? What? Make their clients wealthy. I don't believe that's correct. I believe the answer is make themselves wealthy. Uh huh. Well, probably a lot of your students have gone into hedge funds, <laughs> and so you think well, they're, they're some have, sacrilege. some have. Um, uh, I have one in mind who uh, went to teach for America instead of a hedge fund. I'm very proud of that. But, but <laughs> um, yeah, um, a hedge fund might not be a bad place to work. That's an entirely different matter than handing your money over to a hedge fund. Yeah. So you're saying don't do hedge funds, don't do any kind of aggressive, actively managed fund. No, why don't I say this, Jordan? Any of your listeners who are thinking about putting money in a hedge fund, do all your homework and then call me up, and we'll <laughs> talk about everything you've learned, and, I'll, and at no charge I will run you through your paces. And if you still think after that you should do it, then go with my blessing. Well, obviously, everybody who's investing in hedge funds, of which there's trillions of dollars, think they're doing the right thing, or they wouldn't do it. Yeah, but that's, now there's a very interesting fact about our, our, our public financial life, is people don't seem to be doing careful accounting. Because the truth is, the average, the average hedge fund investor has done much more poorly, much less well, than the average S&P 500 investor over the long term. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, we're about at the end of the show. So why don't you kind of sum up how an investor can negotiate to get the best deal on their investments based on all the advice you give in your book? Okay. I would sum up by saying this. Prepare fully. Know what you're talking about. Then sit down with somebody or with people you're considering working with uh, make clear that you're not making a deal that day and gather as much information as you can. Then focus really hard on what your objectives are, your goals, what you're trying to do. Then get a friend to be you and sit in the other chair and try to figure out what the person you were talking to, what are their goals, what are they trying to do and why, including the hedge fund guy you were talking about. What is he or she trying to do and why? Finally, in the fourth stage, when you're getting ready to make a deal, think of how is it possible that you can make it as likely as possible 
that the people you're making a deal with will keep all their promises to you. How can you make it more likely they'll keep their promises as opposed to less likely? The, um, that, that, that's the advice I would give. Um, study, study, study both investments, if you're thinking of, of a negotiation for investments, and the negotiating process itself so that you can be better at asking the questions, preparing, uh, considering the other side, and knowing what you're tr- really trying to do. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Stephen Bloom. Uh, his new book is called Negotiating Your Investments. His website is negotiatingtruth.com. And thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Stephen. Thank you so much, Jordan. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.